Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter 2. We're going to read the verses 12 through 21. 2 Peter 2, you can find that on page 1895, 1895 in your pew Bible. And then we're going to read Article 7 of the Belgic Confession, which is the last of the articles dealing with the Word of God. And it deals with the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Bible's enough, and it has enough. We'll see something of that in Second Peter 2, beginning at verse 12. Wait a minute. I think I've given the wrong... It's First Peter. No, sorry, so it is Second Peter. Don't change your Bibles. It's Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1, beginning at verse 12. There you go. Second Peter 12, 1, verse 12. So those on uh, the live stream will just have to listen along. Second Peter 1, verse 12. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we were I, or rather, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have heard the word of the prophets made more certain, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus for the reading of God's holy word, then we turn either in our Trinity Psalter hymnals at page 856 or in the Forms and Prayers books at page 157. So it's either 157 or 856 to Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. It is worth noting we have only overlooked two Thus far, Article 4, we didn't go through the list of the 66 books that are found in the Bible. And then in Article 6, we did not deal with the uh, apocryphal books, which are books that were written between Malachi and Matthew. In your Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Then there's 400 years of silence. And then Matthew is the next in the New Testament. Well, in those 400 years, there were, of course, books written. Uh, They were not um, inspired books, but they were valuable books. They're books you can read, that you can learn from. They just don't reach to the level of Scripture. They are not inspired. So we didn't deal with that in Article 6. But in Article 7, we then have this on the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, 
ought to teach other than what the Scriptures or the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings, nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor counsel's decrees or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all humans are, or all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, there is a saying that familiarity breeds contempt, and it means that the more you get used to something, the less appealing, the less exciting it is. We experience that in so many ways, don't we? Maybe on our birthday, we got a new toy, we got a new book, we got some new maybe game, and we're very excited about it. We're, we're thrilled for this thing. We, we want to spend all day with it. We want to play with it or, or, or play on it if it's a computer game and that sort of thing. All day we could just spend all of our time with this new gift. But eventually we forget about it. Eventually it lies gathering dust in a cupboard somewhere. It's not as exciting as it once was. Indeed, something new has come along, something more fun, more exciting, and our passion again grows. Uh, There's all sorts of ways, I think, in which this is demonstrated in our lives, even, unfortunately, uh, the faith, even when it comes to being a Christian. Uh, Because even as Christians, we can start out with a great passion and a sense of wonder only to discover that our walk with the Lord becomes, over time, a bit blasé. It becomes a bit boring. It just becomes a bit same old, same old. And how do we, how do we deal with that? How do we prevent that from happening? How do we stir up our hearts before the Lord? Well, consider what we've learned about the Bible thus far in our study of the uh, Belgic Confession We've discovered that it is the only way in which God reveals Himself to us. Well, He reveals Himself to us in creation, of course, which is enough to leave us without excuse, but it's not enough to change our hearts or to work redemption in our lives. But wonder of wonders, not only does God do something about our need of salvation, sending His Son who dies on the cross and rises on the third day, He also ensures that what He promised and proclaimed is published for all to hear and read. For this reason, the Bible is is a remarkable gift, an amazing blessing from God to us, something that should be for us a most precious possession. God took pains for you to be able to read 
about His grace and goodness, His love, and His saving power to you in Jesus Christ. He wants you to know how deep His love for you is. That's why so many Christians have a great passion for the Word of God. Why some smuggle it into countries that ban it at pain of their own imprisonment or even death. And there are brothers and sisters, aren't there, in the world today who have a Bible in their home hidden. Hidden because they don't want anyone to know that they have the Bible. That may cause them great pain and suffering. But they desperately love to read the stories and learn about the glory of their God on the pages of Scripture. And now compare that passion for God's Word, shared by brothers and sisters in the faith, for your own passion for God's Word. Do you share that kind of zeal, hunger, thirst for the things of God in His Word? Would you hide it in a a place in your home if, if its discovery meant your death? We struggle, don't we, with being passionate about the Word. We have it in plentiful amounts. We have it in lovely leather-bound versions with valuable commentary included. We have free versions on our phones. We have as many translations in the English language as we could desire. And yet, despite all of this riches, despite all of this blessing, despite all of this wonder, too quickly we can find the Bible and its testimony a little blasé, a little too boring, a little too ordinary. At supper, we want Dad to read a little bit less. At night, we don't want to pick up our Bibles or in the morning to do our devotions. It just doesn't really grip us the way the new trailer for the Harry Potter movie does or the way that the, the toys that we've been given for our birthday do. We want something more, something exciting, maybe even something demanding. We have this odd aspect of our human nature that's willing to go on all sorts of, all manner of, of spirit quests and all manner of difficult, demanding spiritual exercises in order to stimulate our piety. Maybe an emotionally stimulating worship service would be nice. Maybe a rather compelling podcast would do it for us. Just not the meat and potatoes that the Lord feeds us every day in His Word. But that Word is what you need. It is the food for your soul. It is enough. It is sufficient. That's what the Belgian Confession teaches us here, that the Bible, that thing that God gave to us, that we might hear of the good news of the Gospel, that we receive from His hand as a gift, that it's enough. It's not everything. It acknowledges that too. The Belgic Confession begins in Article 7 by saying that we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely. It doesn't say exhaustively. The the author of the Belgic Confession knows that not everything that there is to say about God's will is said in the Bible. Indeed, didn't we hear that this morning when we read from John chapter 20? The very end of that chapter tells us that if, if... Everything was written. There'd be no room for it anymore. But these things were written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in Him, you have life. 
And so the Bible does give us everything we need to know about what God's plan and purpose for our lives is. Everything we need to know to live in faith and fellowship with Him and with each other. That's what the Bible gives us. It gives us what God's Word, what God's will for our lives is. And that's understandable if you keep in mind what we have studied thus far concerning the Word of God. Or if you consider what the world thinks about our Bible, this would seem very strange. After all, our world believes that the Bible is written by people, by men, who were thinking ideas about God, making them up as they went along, hoping that they were true. And if even if they were happening upon some basic truth at some point along the way, you could never really be confident that you could know it, that you could understand from the Bible what God wants you to do. Could you have any confidence in your future, in your present, in your right now, if you didn't know what God's command to you was? What if God's command to you was something other than what you're doing right now? What if God's command to you wasn't to have faith in Jesus Christ? Then you wouldn't be able to have any confidence in your heart. If the world is right, then our Bibles are a waste of time to us. But of course the world is wrong, isn't it? We know that the Bible is not the thoughts of men's hearts, not cleverly devised myths, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, but the very revelation of God to us so that we may be certain that what God says to us when He says, have faith in Jesus Christ, believe upon His Word, and you will be saved. That we can be certain that's all we need to do. That we can be certain, therefore, that if we've done that thing, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, that we are then eternally saved. Indeed, at the heart of the Bible from beginning to end, of course, is the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's why the Belgic Confession goes on to speak about not only the will of God, but that everything one must believe to be saved as being sufficiently taught within the Scripture. Indeed, we might say that the central word of the Bible, doesn't matter what book you're in, whether it's a prophecy about the future, whether it's a, a book about the dietary laws of Old Testament Israel, whether it's a, a, a letter from Paul to one of the churches at the very heart of each book, you find this grand truth. Not, not everything that you might want to know, not every answer that you might want to have, but this you have, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And everything flows from that grand central reality. At the heart of the revelation of God in His Word is the work of His Son for us. Indeed, so vital, so important is it that we know that, that the Lord speaks serious and grave warnings against anyone who alters that message in the least, who picks up their Bible, you might say, and says, no, no, that's not what God is saying. God is saying something far different. We've already seen something of that in our study of the book of Galatians when the Apostle Paul, you'll remember, speaks some very hard, some very remarkable words in verse 8 when he says that, he, when he says that if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. 
That's a hard and harsh word, but it's a a reminder of how passionate Paul was, how indeed passionate the Holy Spirit who inspired him was about getting the Gospel right. Already in Deuteronomy, in chapter 12 at verse 32, the Lord had begun to warn His people about the enemies, the temptation there would come to withdraw, to remove, to pare down the revelation of God in His Word. In chapter 12 at verse 32, He says, See that you do, Moses now says, See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Moses understood the temptations of man's heart. He understood the nature of men and what men would do. Indeed, that's why the book ends, doesn't it? The Bible in the book of Revelation at verse 18 and 19 of chapter 22 with strong and stern words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away and takes words away from this book of prophecy. God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in in this book. Now, to be sure, those are words that refer, first of all, to the book of Revelation, but can be applied, of course, to the entirety of Scripture. But what a warning that is. What a warning it is from God when He says to us, Don't take a thing away from it. This is how precious this Word is to me that if you pare it back, if you change it in any way, I will condemn you eternally. That's a a frightening thought. That's something that ought to impress itself upon us, especially in a world such as ours where people routinely find themselves ripping pages out of their Bibles. Maybe not literally, of course, but you have People who say, well, that's not inspired, of course, is it? That's not really the truth anymore, is it? We needn't believe that. And we need, of course, and always to remind ourselves of how it is that at the center of all of this is Jesus Christ. We can differ, of course, on various interpretations of this passage or that passage, but the essential thing, the central thing, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you think about how people today are willing to alter that message, are willing to diminish that truth, are willing to say, but that was so long ago. That's not today. The Lord warns such people about their mistreatment, mishandling of this precious Word with the sternest possible terms. And that ought to impress upon us not just the warning that the Word issues, but the wonder that the Word is. God is so passionate about this Word. He wants you to cherish it so much that He preserves it perfectly and He allows no one to mishandle it. Think of what that means then about how we as the church should receive this Word from our God especially in the midst of the pressures of life and of the immediate demands of our day and the demands that, that claim our attention and our eyeballs. In the midst of all of what the world is doing and trying to do as it seeks to distract us from the good news of the Gospel, is there any more precious blessedness? Is there any more powerful word? Is there any more useful truth? than what we find in the Bible. It may not be the most flashy TikTok video. It may not be the most compelling Marvel movie. 
It may be to us something that we're so familiar with that we can even recite it and remember it long after we've read it. But what is more important than the salvation of our souls? What is more important than the glory of our God? What is more important to our lives than the precious truth of Jesus' forgiveness and grace towards us? The Lord has come to us in His Word with great clarity and simplicity. Maybe not in every text, that's true. Peter also talks about Paul's difficult words. But in the main, even children can read the Bible and understand what it's saying. And He gives to us these words that our hearts may be filled with wonder and joy, that we may stand amazed and encouraged, that we may stand fast in the midst of a fallen and depraved generation in the things of His grace and goodness. Indeed, is it any surprise that in a culture such as ours where the understanding, where the literacy of the Bible, where you can no longer go and assume that people know who Jonah is, know who Moses is, not even who know who Jesus is, There was a time, wasn't there? There was a time when you could speak to your neighbor about Jonah and they knew exactly what you were talking about. Now sometimes even in the classroom in catechism you speak of people in the Scriptures and the children say, who? Is it any wonder that in a diminished literacy, a biblical literacy in a culture, the culture continues to become more and more depraved and more irreverent and more wicked? The Word of God preserves us. The Word of God focuses our attention. The Word of God keeps us where we need to be. It is sufficient for its purposes. And the Word of God that He speaks to us is a Word not of great difficulty, not of great acts of profound piety that must be accomplished in order to be saved. No, it's a Word of grace and mercy and love and power and hope. For when we read the Bible, we come to see just how glorious and great our God is. Do we not need this Word then every day? Being buffeted on every side by the world, the devil, and even our own flesh. And they want us to let go of this glorious grace. They want us to doubt God. They want us to deny God. They want us to trust ourselves and to follow our own path. To orient and organize our life according to our own wisdom. And all we have to fight against such great enemies is this little Word. This Word of hope and this Word of power in Jesus Christ. This sword of the Spirit that we are to lift up and use to fight the good fight of the faith. But to do that, that means we need to be in our Word. We need to be daily in that Word. The Bible and its message must be cherished by each one of us, by us as individuals, by us as parents and grandparents, by us as, as a church community, as teachers in the various ministries of the church, as friends encouraging one another, as singles in whatever circumstance that the Lord calls us to minister, we are to there have upon our lips the things of God's grace and of His Word. That doesn't mean we have to be skilled theologians. As one of the Christians, or we don't need to be one of those Christians that argues about every concept and idea, but we do need to be able to recognize the voice of our shepherd as he leads us with tenderness. And we need to know that this is what the Lord requires of us, that 
through all the clutter of what the world tells us Christianity is about, the truth is it's one simple word, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need to share that word, but we need to know that word personally. Whether we're young or old, a Bible needs to be close at hand. On our phone is fine. In a book beside our bed is fine. Listened to as we walk in the morning is fine. But it needs to be deep within our hearts. For in it we have everything we need to live within this life. Now it is true that there are books, there are speakers, there are people that can bless us in our interpretation of the Bible. We understand that too in the Belgic Confession does as well. The Belgian Confession understands that not everybody reads Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Not everybody has the time to dig into the, the, the deep things of the Word of God and that we are blessed and benefited as a church community by those who in the past have been able to do that. It is good to be able to read Bavink or Calvin and the like. But the Catechism also, or the, canon, the Confession rather, also wants us to be cautious in our appreciation of these things, it does not want us to elevate the teachings of human writings to any position of the Word of God. And for good reason, it's tempting to do that very thing. It is tempting to take a a little book by Kevin DeYoung or by whomever, one of these authors in our day who are able to explain the things so very clearly of God's Word and to say, well, that's what I believe and not do the work of the Bereans and take up the Scripture and say, is that in fact what the Word of God says? It is tempting for us because it is an easier way to go, to trust authors and customs and majorities and different ages and cultures and the passage of times or persons, councils, decrees, or official decisions. It's easy for us to say, but the Synod of 14-whatever said this was true. It's easy for us. It cuts through all of the hard work and it prevents us from having to do the difficult things that the Lord requires of us in His Word. It is a challenge to appreciate the sufficiency of Scripture. It is a challenge to interpret God's Word. Just consider the simple truth of the Trinity as an obvious example. It's not easy, is it? to be able to string together all of those passages in God's Word as they build the case for the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. You don't find a single text where you can say, this is it, here you go, this is the only passage you need for understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. You have in 2 Corinthians 13 that benediction, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You have the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan River by John the Baptist where the voice of the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased as the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove. You have Genesis chapter 1 where God says, let us make man in our own image. You have Acts chapter 5 where Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and anyone who lies to God will be condemned. You have all of these passages that you bring together and go, oh, I see, yes, very good. I understand that the Bible reveals the doctrine of the Trinity. 
But to do that takes a bit of work, doesn't it? It takes a bit of learning. It takes a bit of study. It takes a bit of sitting down for a moment in a Bible class or even at home with your confession open before you with all of its footnotes and references to the Bible and saying, indeed, is this true? But it is a difficult thing to do and to do well, isn't it? I mean, after all, there's nothing more troubling, is there, in this life than fights over theology and doctrine. Indeed, that's sometimes why we are concerned with, why we are troubled by people who are intellectual, who, who spend their time, it seems, looking for reasons not to believe the simple truth of the Gospel. And we tell ourselves that, that I'm not going to do that sort of thing. I'm just going to take the simple story. I'm, I have a simple faith and I'm going to believe the simple truth. And that's good. That's important and valuable. But simplicity is not. We might think to ourselves, what's the point of reading the Bible so persistently if it only leads to disagreements? But what we ought to understand is the problem is not with studying the Bible. The problem is with the people who study That is, that we are unwilling to submit ourselves to the Word of God. We're unwilling to listen to the voice of our shepherd. We're unwilling to humble ourselves and to open our hearts before the Lord, asking for His Spirit to equip and enable us not only to understand, but to be able to communicate these things clearly and consistently with with those among whom we live. It's a lot easier to just let others do the hard work and take their fruit and share it. Here's a great podcast. Here's a great book. Here's a great author. And there is a value to tradition. Of course there is. But it's a value that is derived from the authority of the Word of God. And what we need to appreciate, especially in an environment such as ours, where there are so many voices, there are so many people, That the way for us to move forward, the way for us to cut through all the clutter, the way for us to discern what is good and healthy and holy and helpful is by listening carefully to the Word of God. By listening carefully, not first of all to its interpretation and explanation by others, but to its simple truth. That's how the American treasury will undoubtedly no, trained its agents to discover counterfeits. Counterfeiting is now done, or the discovery of counterfeiting is done in so many other ways. You go to the store and they put it under a light and that sort of thing, and all of the technology that's in a simple dollar bill, or I suppose we don't have dollar bills anymore, but a five dollar bill, all of the technology that's in that thing to make sure that nobody can duplicate it is remarkable. But there was a time when all you had were the two eyes of a treasury agent. Elliot Ness, as he went about his business. And how did the American treasury train their agents to identify counterfeits? Because counterfeiters are very good at what they do. They want that dollar or that ten dollars or that hundred dollar bill to look exactly like the one that the government itself produces. Now what did they do? Did they get every kind of counterfeit version there was and put them before their treasury agents and say, you've got to memorize all of these so that if you see them, you'll know that they're counterfeit? That would have been impossible. They would have always been behind them. There would have always been a new counterfeit, a different counterfeit that they didn't identify. 
That's the way it is in the church so often too, isn't it? We're good at knowing that the Nestorians are no good and the Docetites are no good. You may not even remember who those people are. They're so long ago. But what about the modern, the today problems, the errors that are being taught and foisted upon the church in our day and in our moment? They're brand new. We, we haven't had the time to really review them. We don't really understand what they're all about. They sound good. They sound appealing. They sound encouraging. How can we know? Well, the American government made sure of this, that its treasury agents could know every, every line, every swirl, everything about an American currency there was to know. They didn't give them counterfeits to study. They gave them the real McCoy. And they said, you learn this dollar bill inside and out and backwards. You know everything so perfectly that as soon as one line is out of place, you can identify that it's a counterfeit. And that's the way the church is to stand fast too. The church is to know their Word, know their Bible so well that when someone comes along with a different idea, the church can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right from what I've read in my Bible. Maybe Calvin disagrees with it, but Calvin is Calvin. Maybe you say, well, Luther doesn't agree, but that's Luther. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and they want to tell me why the doctrine of the Trinity is wrong, they take issue with Constantine and with, with Nicaea and they say all of those, all of, the, only doc, the doctrine of the Trinity is only possible because of those councils of the church. And I say, no, that's not at all true, is it? And we open God's Word and we sit down and we listen to the Bible. We need to be able to be conversant with our Bibles, with our Word. We need to be able to identify when a lie is being told us. We need to recognize if you haven't heard it before, if you hear something that you go, well, I never heard that before, that's probably a problem. And you need to do the tough work and the difficult, challenging work of getting into your Word and studying it so that you can know what God says. And you think to yourself, I'm, I'm not equipped for that. I can't do that. I, I, I haven't the skills necessary to interpret the Bible. And that may be true, but the very approach is problematic. If you need skills to interpret the Bible, then the skills are more important than the Bible. If the Bible is not clear and compelling on its own, if you need some grand education to be able to understand it, and maybe you need some education to understand parts of it, but if you need to to be trained for, for years upon years before you can begin to make sense of the Bible, then we have a problem. Because then the Bible is no longer speaking to us. Our skills are. Our tools are. That's why for the history of the church, the approach that has been used to interpret Scripture has been for so long that Scripture interprets Scripture. That statement that, that says, in the end, if you want to know what the Bible says, ask the Bible. Don't ask Calvin, first of all. Don't ask Luther. They're good. They're valuable. They're useful. But ask the Bible. What does the Bible say the bible wins every argument about its meaning over against any author over against any expert and there is a way isn't there to discern what the word of god is saying to us a way that even children can use 
Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, now how can I do that? I don't know if I can do that. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's a simple standard, isn't it? To be able to discern the truth. Does this, what I'm being told, draw me closer to to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, or does it bring me somewhere else? Listen to what 2 John 10 says. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not bring him into your house or welcome him. And what is the teaching that we are not to bring or that that is to be brought to us? Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So if we sit at the feet of Jesus, if we listen carefully to the things of God in His Word, if we do what the Bereans did, by taking up Scripture and comparing it with what we're hearing, then we will find ourselves safe and secure. We will find ourselves not pushed about by every wind of doctrine. We will not find ourselves divided and broken by foolish ideas and empty vain thoughts. Then we will find ourselves united and confident and comforted by the good news of the Gospel. Indeed, therein lies the goal, isn't it, of the Gospel for our hearts. Therein lies the Word of God's purpose for us to lead us in fellowship and in faith with God. That's what the Word of God requires. It's hard to decide which voice in our day among the many is the one speaking truth. The answer is often the one unasked. It is, it's not what we are told that matters, but from whom we are being told it. It's not what we know, it's how we know. That is to say, are we listening to some expert or are we listening to the Word of God? The method is as important as the result. That how we get to understanding what the Word of God says is as important as what the Word of God says. What is the way that we interpret Scripture? The answer is we don't. The Bible does. It means that we listen to a passage in the context of its chapter, in the context of its book, in the context of its testament, in the context of its Bible. So that if somebody comes along to me and says, wait a second, this passage says that God is not triune. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You say, wait a second, what is that passage saying? Or when I was in school, in high school, and and people would take that passage from Peter where it talks about one day as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day and say, well, you see, evolution isn't true because that's what the Bible says. You go, wait a minute, that's not at all what Peter's saying. Peter's saying God is patient, not wanting to condemn anyone. He's not talking about evolution at all. How we interpret the Bible must follow these basic rules. We listen to the thought. We listen to it in its context, in its ever-increasing context, so that we can be sure that what God says is what we hear, so that we can move our trust and faith away from people and place it upon His Word. 
For it is His Word that is our hope and our confidence. It is His Word that is our certainty and our strength. What we believe ultimately is not relevant. What God has done in Jesus Christ is ultimately relevant. And the Word of God speaks to us of these things. That we may put our trust not in what we think, but in what He has done. And so the Word of God is for us a constant reminder to look outside of ourselves and to rest confidently in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if the Bible is that for us, then our hearts will be forever stirred and our wonder will be forever blessed. And then we will not find ourselves contemptible towards the Bible. We will not say, oh, that boring book, not again. Give us something new and exciting. Instead, we will say, give us the old, old story. Tell us again about how God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. Then our ears will not itch for anything save for this, that the Lord has worked salvation for His people and has redeemed them by His glory and His grace. The Bible will be hardly blasé for us. It will be a blessing and sufficient for all our needs. Let's thank the Lord for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that You've given us Your Word. And we acknowledge that we do at times find ourselves a little bit bored with it. It is so ordinary. But Lord, we pray that in a world where the extraordinary is on display at all times, where the newest and the best thing is what attracts our attention, that you would help us, at least in our spirituality, in our faith, and in our love for you, to be content with the ordinary, the usual, the basic, the boring. Not boring, Lord, to us. Maybe boring to the world. Because to us it is the glorious grace of Your Son, Jesus Christ, the amazing saving work which has purchased us a poor and impoverished people. Lord, we pray that You would help us to forever stand amazed at what You accomplished in Your Son and may Your Word be precious to us each and every day. We pray this, Heavenly God and Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.